Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Coffee Clutch. This is Marianne Russo. Today we're going to be discussing sensory processing disorder. Sensory processing disorder is a neurological syndrome which affects many children and like many other childhood disorders, it has much comorbidity with several mental um, children's mental illnesses. Um, unraveling this comorbidity can be very confusing and it takes sometimes years to unravel and individually identify, um, but it's crucial for the proper treatment and the resolution of the behaviors. Um, last week, Oprah Winfrey did a special on childhood mental illness, and I had myself have not seen the entire show, but I did see clips, and I was very pleased to see the show brought national attention to the devastation and heartache of these families. So, you know, it was it was very important and eye-opening, I think, for many people who do not understand what these families go through. You know, often when doing an interview, um, you know, due to lack of time or editing or various other reasons, um, some information is omitted or not mentioned, and, you know, it happens. And I do not think in any way that there was any intentional um, misleading or misrepresentation. You know, it, but it has been brought to my attention by many parents of children with sensory processing disorder that did watch the show that the comorbid mental illnesses um, that one of the boys had were not mentioned specifically. Only his diagnosis of sensory processing disorder, which led them to fear that the extreme behavioral presentations exhibited by this boy um, were due to his sensory processing disorder diagnosis. So today I am doing a special talk radio edition to continue this conversation and clarify what sensory processing disorder is and is not. And, you know, it is my hope to clarify, inform, and calm some nervous parents. Um, I see that we uh, I want to bring on my final guest, um, and then I'll go into my introductions. Um, today joining me are three outstanding experts on sensory processing disorder. Dr. Lucy Miller, the Executive Director of the Sensory Processing uh, Disorder Foundation. She is the author of Sensational Kids Hope and Help for Children with Sensory Processing Disorder, and she is the creator of the nationally standardized Miller Assessment for Preschoolers, known as MAP, used to assess preschool children with developmental disorders. With me also is Carol Kranowitz, author of the award-winning book, The InSync Child, and the follow-up book, Growing an InSync Child. Um, if you have a child with sensory processing disorder, you know Carol. Her books are considered the Bibles for parents with sensory dysregulation therapies. Um, Hartley Steiner, one of the um, Coffee Clatch moderators, is also here. She is the author of Gabriel, Making Sense of School, a wonderful book for children explaining why these kids do what they do. So welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Marianne. Good morning. Um, I want to start off asking um, Dr. Miller a few questions. Um, Dr. Miller, thank you for joining us. I'm thrilled to sure, have you Sure, you're here. welcome. Glad to be here. Okay, now, just basically, um, briefly, what is sensory processing disorder, and what does sensory processing even mean? You know, there are so many definitions of sensory processing and sensory processing disorder. I like to keep it as simple as possible. Sensory processing is the ability to take information in from the environment or from your body, information your body is telling you, and turn it into something which is understandable. So a disorder of sensory processing would mean that the sensation you are receiving in your body is is not making sense to you. In other words, 
You feel something, but you don't feel it accurately. You see something, but you don't see it accurately. And it can cause problems that look like behavior problems or motor problems, which are actually due to sensation being physiologically not processed correctly. Yes, I know sensory issues are just huge, you know, in so many of these kids and, you know, cause so many different presentations. Now, is exactly. sensory processing disorder um, a standalone diagnosis or is it always secondary um, good, or good comorbid question. with other disorders? Great question. We we know, our research shows that it is definitely a standalone disorder. In about 75% of the kids who have this disorder, it is a standalone disorder. 25% of the kids have other disorders as well, but it has not yet been recognized as a formal disorder, so that's the confusion. Right. I know that there's, I'm hoping it's going to be in the DSM-5. Um, yes, we've been working so, on that for 15 years, trying to get it and in that the would DSM-5. Be, yeah, you know, and that would be listed as a neurological disorder, not a mental illness. Am I correct? Is that what they're well, looking for? Well, you know, a lot of people don't understand that the DSM calls itself a diagnostic manual of mental health but has language and motor and reading and so mm-hmm. it's a very comprehensive um it doesn't separate things by neurological versus mental health it's really developmental right which is which is good it um, is it's no, great yeah it really is it's very important and um you know, it's very important. I mean, in this case, this is a childhood disorder, but, you know, for other for mental illnesses, which we're going to go into later, um, it's it's very important that they identify and distinguish between child and adult presentations because they present so differently. Um, getting back to um, sensory processing disorder being a standalone diagnosis, standing alone, what, I know that there are many subgroups, but what would sensory processing disorder look like without any comorbid conditions? It has several different subgroups, as you mentioned, but let's just take some examples. Red flags would be children who cannot stand to be in a noisy environment like a sports arena or a birthday party or a family event. They get overexcited, they get hyperactive, and they start to have behavior problems. Um, In fact, any child who has behavior problems, you want to take a look at their sensory system just to make sure it's not caused by an overload or an under amount of recognition of sensation. So it could also look like a child who's under-responsive, who maybe sits in the corner, plays with his Legos, doesn't really, isn't really motivated to run around and play with his friends. We, we look for problems in social participation, in self-regulation, and in self-esteem, as well as looking for the sensory symptoms. It's so important. You know, but with so many um, overlapping disorders Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. do come with it, um, how is a primary diagnosis of sensory processing disorder made? So, you know, who would a parent go to and um, how would that standalone diagnosis be made? Well, of course, we're not allowed to use the word diagnosis. (laughs) We have to get around that by saying identify. Right here, okay. So we identify children with sensory processing disorder. Um, The people who have the most experience in this are occupational therapists, but not all OTs have the really depth of knowledge that is needed to sort out and do a differential diagnosis. So 
The best kind of advice I would give parents is to get a team evaluation. So you have a psychologist, some sort of medical doctor, pediatrician, or child psych, and probably speech language and definitely OT. And by looking at all parts of the child as a whole, you can then sort through and figure out what is it, what isn't it, is it a comorbid, or is it a standalone. Right. And um, Carol Cranowitz, I'm thrilled to have you back. You've been a guest before. Um, I, I was, I wanted to ask you, you know, with the ongoing sensation, um, which is actually like a discomfort and a chronic stress for these kids, um, you know, it's often the cause of the behavioral issues. Um, I wanted to go over three of the main types of sensory processing disorder: um, sensory modulation disorder, um, sensory discrimination disorder, and then you know, go into the subgroups. So, can you just explain um, the differences for us? Sure, and since Lucy is one of my biggest teachers, Lucy, you'll jump in and tell me. <laughs> uh, um, uh, the breakdown is uh, three categories that you just mentioned, Marianne. The the uh, modulation problems are where the child uh, is, or the adult, is either over-responsive and shuts down to the to incoming sensations, and um, I call this person the avoider, so that's the child who would prefer to clap his hands over his ears and sit under the table when the class is singing a song, um, or a child who doesn't want to stand in line because uh, the unpredictability of the other kids around him uh, makes him feel threatened. He de- he can't um, tolerate light, unexpected touch. Um, or the child who um, doesn't like the way the grilled cheese sandwiches smell coming down, wafting down the corridor at school. So all the senses, the person can be affected by all the senses, or can have a specialty. So so over over responsive people, what's happening? There's a, um, a rea- um, over reaction in the brain, and then the behavioral response is what we see. So we can look at kids jumping away and put on our sensory goggles and look at these kids and think, what is this child trying to get away from? And sometimes that can be very, very helpful. Um, Then there are people who are under-responsive, and they need dynamite to wake them up. Uh, I remember one little boy who was a student of mine at preschool uh, who came alive when we had a fire drill one day, and uh, we hadn't really seen this child emerge until we had this planned fire drill. And he was in love with the fire drill, um, loved the strobe light, loved the noise. He went toward it, and the other kids were trying to get away from it. And we realized this: this is a child so under-responsive, so mild in everything he did that he needed a lot of intense vigorous input to get him in gear. So we would give him these big squeeze-its when we'd get him out of the car in the morning. We'd crush him, and he loved it. Sometimes we would hold him upside down and swing him a little bit. Oh, he loved it. And we gave him a lot of heavy work activity, like um, carrying bags of mulch for the school garden. Um, And those were activities that helped not only this under-responsive child, but his typical peers enjoyed that too. All of our kids need mm-hmm. more of that deep pressure and heavy work. Um, 
which we tend not to give them these days. We give them the remote instead. A, a, a third subtype, a third subtype of uh, this category of modulation problems is the seeker. And um, Lucy Miller has explained to me that this this looks different from other kinds of kids. This is the the child who's got to have it, got to get more, got to keep going incessantly moving and fidgeting and climbing. Everything is a ladder. The the bookcases are a ladder. I, I heard of one child who um, his parents had a um, portrait of an ancestor that they had taken off the wall and they, they had propped it against the wall. They were going to take it for repairs. And it had some wood um, uh, supports in the back. And the kid climbed up these wood supports, which were not designed as a ladder and he his feet went through the oil painting and ruined it and you know that's the kind of behavior if you don't know what you're seeing you're furious uh, and right um, and i think yeah. that's, that's important to be said is that you know this is a very um alarming problem for parents because they don't understand the behaviors right Right, and they think that it's voluntary, and it's not. I mean, this little boy that ruined his great-grandfather's face was, it was there. It, this was an obstacle course. It looked like fun. It was something where he could clamor up and get some input, and uh, he wasn't doing it. And so much of it sounds part. like ADHD as I'm listening to you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I could see how there could be a lot of confusion. Um, you know, now is... Sensory processing disorder itself is not a developmental delay, right? Right. Okay. So then um, are there any developmental milestones the parents should be looking for, or is is that um, irrelevant? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating over your saying that it's not a developmental delay. In the sense that a developmental delay means Without any intervention, it'll just come along on its own time. It's just late. Oh, can I? I'd like to say something about that because I um, I helped screen a lot of children at St. Columbus Nursery School, um, where I taught for 25 years, and and it was interesting to look at some of the children we screened who had these soft signs of of um, SPD, and that's very important too to to look at kids and and try to ascertain, and parents can't do this alone. It, it needs an experienced OT, I think. But to ascertain if this child could benefit from intervention right away or just needs a little more time to blossom. Because sometimes these these um, the building blocks that kids need, the, the fine motor skills, the balance, um, the uh, tol- tolerance of all sensations, sometimes those just take a little bit longer but it, the child does not have SPD, so right. I think it's that important. That's when it would be a developmental delay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so milestones. Um, 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 gosh, go to the playground and, and look at the other kids that are the, around the same age as your own kid and ask yourself, gee, that other two-year-old there is holding on to the swing by herself and... My little one can't do that. My little one can't get on and stay put. Or, um, gee, that child is uh, beginning to talk a little bit to kids he doesn't know. And I I think some of that um, 
looking at your kid in a group of other children can be very revealing. I, I, again, I refer to my years as a preschool teacher. Children's posture can tell you a lot. If you you expect children to be sitting upright, not slumping, um, comfortable sitting on the floor, for instance, when they're young, or comfortable sitting in their chair. And look at kids the way they're, are they slumping? That would show that they might have a sensory-based motor disorder where um, they can't, because of, because of underlying problems with their vestibular and proprioceptive senses, they can't keep upright. Um, they, they, they gravitate toward the floor more. Or look at kids and who are... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish your thought. Okay. Um, uh, you can spot visual dysfunction. Uh, I, the, I, I found a few of those cases of kids who would be looking sideways. All the other children are facing the teacher or the felt board or the story or the blackboard, and here's Charlie over there looking, turning his body and looking sideways. Well, posture can say can help us look at these kids' behavior and think, gee, what could be an underlying reason for that? Could be that visual problems exist that prevent him from looking square on. He doesn't have good bilateral coordination, for instance. Uh, and my understanding the, is that a lot of the um, presentations change daily. So, Dr. Miller, you know, since, um, you know, the presentations can change daily, um, even being proactive, I assume, can be difficult. So, you know, how does a parent get to the universal cause when it's ever-changing? Well, it can change even within an hour. So it's not just day-to-day. It can be very variable. But here's what I recommend for early identification. Look for the intensity of the child's response. If the child is having a meltdown, is it something you can interrupt or does it go on and on and on? Because if it keeps going, there's something in the brain that's keeping it going. Look for children who are having trouble with social participation of any sort. Either they're too involved and are bonking kids or they're afraid to get involved. Look for responses to environmental stimuli like sirens and um, noisy environments and look for children who either get too involved again or don't get involved enough. And it's the intensity and the duration of the response that makes it go outside of normal limits. Everybody has atypical responses to sensation sometimes. But if it interferes with your daily life routines, that's when it kind of crosses the border into being a disorder. Nice. Right. And, you know, I would assume that there are drivers that are behind these behaviors. And, you know, I say it all the time. I think, you know, my audience is sick of hearing it. But, you know, to me it's so important because behind every behavior is a reason. And when you identify the reason, that's mm-hmm. when you can begin to make the change that the child needs. So um, how does a parent begin to unravel the drivers. I know that you have um, established MAP, and, um, you know, what what type of testing could be done and what type of testing should parents ask for? And then we're going to um, go into, with Hartley, comorbidity with a lot of these other, uh, a lot of other mental illnesses. Okay. Uh, first of all, MAP is, yes, one of my tests. I have ten different nationally standardized tests now. The newest test is a sensory test called the Sensory Processing Scale, which we are almost done with. It's not out on the market yet, but many people have been using 
pieces of that. And many OTs are trained to do this without a formal test by looking at children. Um, but could I just clarify one other piece? That is mm-hmm. the sensory seeker piece. We've been studying that a lot this year. And children who are sensory seekers are 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 not children who need more sensation. In fact, we are sort of fooling around with the label sensory craver because it's almost like they're addicted to sensation. They they can never get enough. And if you just give them more and more and more, it does not fill them up. It does not take care of their need. You need to have a very special kind of sensation in order to help those children. And I just wanted to make that point since we had breezed over sensory seekers mm-hmm. so quickly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I and you know, even to go into even smaller details. I mean, there's tactile sensitivity where yeah, there right. can be a child that can't stand seams on their socks, and right. it would be like us walking with sandpaper in our stilettos. It's maddening, and, uh, and you know, if parents be... aren't aware of this and they don't understand why the child doesn't want to go out, why the child doesn't want to get dressed, right. um, you know, they become very, um, you know, frustrated with the child, and you know, right. it, there are a lot of issues. So it's very, you know, it's very complex. It is, because a child can be defensive in tactile, like you just talked about, but they can be craving in movement. So it's very, and any other combination of sensations. So it takes somebody very, very skilled to really diagnose a child and and do a differential diagnosis so you know exactly what is wrong. I I just want to say one word about another category, because we talked about modulation problems and a little bit about sensory-based motor um, uh, but there's discrimination too, and these these kids who have discrimination problems ha- have difficulty uh, differentiating between and among sensations. So they they don't um, know if it's hot or cold or heavy or light, or um, uh, they don't know if they're falling sometimes. So. Um, um, and these are children that uh, they never get the buttons in the right buttonholes, and they lose their papers. And uh, big, frequent issues are visual discrimination and auditory discrimination, uh, which means that they are missing out on seeing the details or hearing the details. Um, uh, they don't get the beginnings and the ends of words often, so it's hard for them to have a conversation. And you'll see kids out on the playground, and and other children will be listening to the child with the auditory discrimination problems with quizzical looks on their faces because they don't know what the kid's talking about, and he thinks he's part of the conversation, but he missed the words. So, um, right, and that just adds to the self-esteem issues oh, and, yes. and everything else. It's so yes, difficult. Right. Right, and, and then there's you know, and that's a lot of these kids have to deal with is that the other children don't get them. Not only do the parents not get them, the children don't get them. Exactly. The teachers don't get them, and you know, it just it just lends itself to be so devastating for the child. Yeah, and you'll and hear family. Kids, yeah, and you'll hear kids saying, "I'm no good at that," or "I'm so dumb, I can't do that." And then, after a while, they don't even try because it. It looks whatever the whatever the task is, uh, riding a bicycle, for instance. It seems daunting to them because it requires balance and it and and tactily holding onto the handlebars and vision visual scenes going rapidly past them and their depth perception can be a problem. Uh, it, uh, 
And my understanding is that sensory processing disorder is more prevalent in some children than others. So um, if that's true, which I'm not sure if it's true, who is more vulnerable? And what is the latest research telling us about brain neurodevelopment, gene expression, you know, brain architecture? Um, you know, what what are we learning? Lucy. Yes. Um, <laughs> I want to make sure Hartley has time to speak yeah. also because in my I, – I love to answer that question, and I also feel really compelled to say that SPD is not just a problem for children. It affects the whole family. And so families are talk about self-esteem and ch- children being – taken away from their families as children and becoming sort of bad little objects that you have to deal with. The the changes that we see in treatment are huge and affect the whole family because the whole family is really affected by the child's behavior. But getting back to research, I love to talk about research. So much research has has been done over the last decade and it used to be that there was no rigorous research and and now when somebody comes up to me and says, oh, but there's no research on that, you know, and I can say, oh, that's so 80s, because <laughs> we, now have, we now have dozens of studies. We have, for example, a twin study done by Hill Goldsmith at University of Madison, of Wisconsin in Madison, that looked at um, twins who were fraternal versus twins who were not, and found that the kids who are identical twins have much more likelihood of having um, SPD, if one had it, the other would have it. That's a very strong indicator of a genetic underpinning. To Who's them. the leader of that research, Lucy? Hill, Hill Goldsmith. Okay, thank you. Yeah, he's, he's, he's amazing. Oh, yeah. One of the most important new studies that has been published has been by Alice Carter. She's at, she was at Yale, and uh, she works with Margaret Briggs-Gowen there. So Yale and University of Massachusetts at Boston. They have a grant from NIH to follow a whole group of children from birth on, and the kids are now age 10. And they have found that at age 8, the children who had sensory processing problems had much greater likelihood, four times greater likelihood, of having social problems, of being either aggressive or having severe anxiety. So that suggests... um, and they they were the same over time, which suggests a continuum of this disorder. In other words, you don't just develop it at age eight. You have symptoms much right. younger that are stable over time. So there are many And it other seems like a spectrum process. disorder to me also. You know, it seems like a spectrum disorder, you know, it, not much different than autism, different presentations, but, different, you know, vast um, levels of impairment. Exactly. I hate to use the word spectrum because everybody assumes that means autism. And one of the really important messages is that SPD is not autism. It is not. Absolutely. We're going to go into that next. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. I know you yes. are. You know, Hartley actually. Um, you know, hi, Hartley. Um, hi, there, to add, You know, <laughs> adding to all of this standalone sensory processing disorder dysfunction, add comorbidity with a mental illness. And you have a really devastating problem for many families. So um, I want to talk about comorbidity. And, you know, I want you to talk a little bit about your experience with it. I know that it's it's oftentimes found with bipolar disorder, with attention deficit disorder, and with with um, children with autism, like Asperger's. And, you know, like, you know, we've spoken before, 
with you know certain di- disorders like with Tourette's syndrome, which is a neurological disorder. Its presentation with obsessive compulsive disorder and ADHD present very differently than a standalone or with a different um, comorbidity with a different disorder. So, how does sensory processing disorder um, present itself with mental illnesses as a tag along disorder? Well, for our family, my, my oldest Gabriel has, um, well, currently is diagnosed with bipolar and autism, PDD, NOS, as well as sensory processing disorder. Um, he was first diagnosed with sensory processing disorder at four, and like Carol and Lucy said, um, he had many of the seeking or craving behaviors. He would climb everything, anything, bookshelves. He would climb to the top of the playground and then climb on what you weren't supposed to climb on and stand there. Um, so all of these kind of pieces definitely led themselves to a sensory diagnosis fairly easily. Um, I joke with people now, but when I went through the whole standardized testing thing, the answer all the questions, does they do this, do they do this always, sometimes, or never? I was like, always, 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 like all down the checklist. So when we got that diagnosis, it was fantastic. But the problem was is that as we went through OT and we teased out what the sensory issues were, um, you could tell that there were these other pieces that weren't getting addressed. He was still having rages. Um, Somebody asked me recently what the definition of rages was. I'm not a medical doctor, but... For me, you have the meltdown, the sensory meltdown, where there's obviously something going on that's stopping this child from acting adaptively, whether that's, you know, the input's too great or too low, but something's happening this child is not in control of, different than a tantrum where the child is intentionally trying to get something, which I try to push is rarer than most parents think. Um, And then for Gabriel, his raging was scary. Um, It was destructive. It was violent. It was out of control, he would... Yeah, parents describe it as dark. Um, a lot of parents describe yeah. it as dark, that there's just a whole change to their appearance and their demeanor. Yeah. It's a frightening thing. That, it's not a temper tantrum. <laughs> no, and I lose. I would lose Gabriel. He would go away. His eyes would change. I mean, I know that sounds so right. woo-woo, but he would. It would, he would. He would not be there. And um, so as these in, incredible rages would come over anything, no, you can't have dessert, or no, we're not going outside to ride your bike right now, whatever it was, could put him completely over the edge. And I think that a a big difference here for the sensory issues, it was, you know, it's too loud in here is a different conversation for him to be, like, covering his ears and flipping out, different than me saying, no, we can't have tacos for dinner, or there's only two waffles left and he would lose his mind. Um, I, you know, I describe it to his doctor as a psychotic break because there were times that he really genuinely was just not with us. He was so... Raging and dangerous, and um, and I think that's I think important that to mention that because it's different from sensory processing disorder with a child that's seeking or is avoiding because a mental illness presents itself very differently. And, it does. Um, you know, and I think that the way that the the boy um, was portrayed, mm-hmm. I think his name was Zach, um, mm-hmm. clearly clearly had a mental illness along with the sensory processing, and you mm-hmm. know that was one of the reasons I wanted to do this because yes. Sensory processing is comorbid with a lot of mental illnesses, but the extreme behaviors, I believe, for that child probably were more um, due to the mental illness and not the sensory processing. Well, I think that that's the important part. Yeah, you're teasing out all these behaviors. So once we had sensory under control, I still had the behaviors that that boy on Oprah was, you know, exhibiting. My son, 
um, I'm not trying to throw him under the bus here, but he has pulled a knife on me. He's pulled a knife on his babysitter. He's threatened to kill every member in our family. Um, he tried to hang himself at seven years old. He has gone through what is really mental illness. And the reason why I was concerned with the Oprah show was because when they just threw the word sensory integration out there and then went on to talk about mental illness, it really led parents to believe that the primary diagnosis of sensory processing disorder would lead to these mental illness-type symptoms. And, I'm not, and I don't want to just you know, throw mental illness and neurodevelopmental out there and, and create a line in the sand, but I think when it comes to parents seeking help for their children, it is very important that they identify really what the cause of the behavior is so they get the right treatment. You know, my son had OT for sensory. It worked wonderful on his sensory issues, but it did not change that he is bipolar, that he raged. It didn't change that he had autism. And those pieces came later as we finished one piece of the puzzle. There was still other behaviors, other challenges. And, you know, my son is very complex as far as his neurology goes. Um, right. But, you know, knowing which piece is which is important for me at this point. You know, he's nine and a half, and the research that Dr. Miller was saying about how they, you know, change over time and that the different things that showed up with these children at eight, I think is important for parents to know too because although our children, you know, start with one diagnosis and we try so hard to therapy all that away um, and we do our best to make it better, our children do continually change and new things present themselves that may or may not have always been there, but definitely and, you know, I think also that, show up. And I think also that the key to all of this is that um, a parent needs to understand that not all skills are acquired naturally. I say it over and over. The <laughs> skills need to be taught, and especially for children with these dysregulations. And mm -hmm. the, the calming techniques, knowing that you sometimes need to fidget to focus, are mm -hmm. very, very important because, okay, there are these mental illnesses that are very severe and need to be treated very differently with medications and psychotherapy. But um, sensory issues are triggers for these kids. So, you know, identifying them and, 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 and dividing is important. And I know that, you know, there are some people, I know, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of people with um, autism that don't want autism defined as mental illness. A sensory processing disorder. Some parents were offended that that was considered a mental illness. For me, I think that to want to draw that line and for it to be so defined really defeats the purpose of, purpose of stomping the stigma of mental illness anyway. Mm -hmm. But I understand yeah. why the definitions need to be made. But I think that to say I don't want this to be mental illness really puts the onus on mental illness, and it doesn't do anybody any good. Um, sure. But, but I think uh, that we also have to point out that we're not just putting the stigma on mental illness. We're separating the, the way things are treated. You know, Absolutely. You know, my son's mental illness isn't going to be treated with OT. You know, that's just not yeah. how it works. Right. And, well, that's why it's important to identify the differences. Now, um, Carol, Dr. Miller, do you know what percentage of children with sensory processing disorder do um, have comorbidity with different um, mental illnesses? 25%. Um, okay, so that's lower than I expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too, actually. And that's, um, that's not including severe uh, developmental sort of what we used to call mental retardation, we now call cognitive delay. It's not including the very, very severe children, but in just the everyday school population, you would see 75% uh, of the children with SPD have standalone SPD. So that's huge. 
And these yeah, children, and by the also, way, are, are usually not identified at all. These are the children who are, quote, slow learners, they're bad children, they have behavior problems, they don't listen. Those are not children necessarily who are even identified. And what would what would you like to see? Um, and this is for all of you. Um, what would you like to see for accommodations and IEPs for these kids? Because parents need to know what to ask for. Mm-hmm. Well, I myself, I you know, the whole school model is really changing, so that there are very few pull-out services, which I think is good. I think the services that the children need are things like places in the classroom that are quiet, that they're allowed to go for, we call it time in instead of time out. So they have a choice of whether to go into the little tent, and they can go at any time, and nobody can bother them when they're there. That's their put-it-together time. We need alternating times between movement and sitting so that no child is sitting more than 20 minutes in a row. They get a 30-second stretch break or a bouncing around break or something before they go on to do more work. There are many, many things that can be integrated into the regular classroom that are good for all children. Absolutely. You know, Marianne, I have a list on my website that I put together with my son's local OT here, and it lists 100 of the most common um, sensory accommodations that I've used for him. Um, and they include that, all give, of the- give out the website so parents can go over and then post it on the fa- our Facebook it's at hartleysboys.com. Um, there's a link at the top of the blog that says sensory download. Um, it just goes through all the basics, the things that Dr. Miller had said, from from breaks and movement to pre- preferential seating, depending on what the child needs, front or back of the classroom. It talks about um, fidgets. It talks about um, specific needs to stand in a line, be first or last. It talks about an ability to have a sensory place, like under a table or a quiet book place, the ability to wear earphones, chew gum. Um, every kid is so different. Mm-hmm. I encourage parents to, you know, journal and teachers to journal to really see when where the child's challenges are and how they can best be addressed because oftentimes there's a way to prevent. You know, we know every day after after lunch our child's going to have a meltdown, probably because the cafeteria was too loud or social activities at recess were too much. Right. And then instead of coming in going straight to writing, then maybe that child needs to come in and, and have some downtime first or do reading or quiet music time. So all of these sensory, um, the sensory download has all of these accommodations, but they're not meant for one child to use all of them. They're really I just, just think that's technique. such an important point, Hartley. Everybody is asking for sensory diets, and the problem with the sensory diet is that it's static. And what you're talking about, which is so good, is more of a problem-solving approach, or we call it a reasoning approach, to what the child needs. It changes, and if you say, do this, 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 and this every day, you're not going to get what you need for that child. So education is critical, <coughs> educating teachers, educating parents, so that not that they go home with a sensory diet that they do every day, but they understand what to do in context, in the moment, to help their child. <coughs> I think it's important, too, to to look at what the child is doing, and it might be very annoying to the teacher or the parent, but say the child is excuse me <coughs> tapping his foot a lot while taking a test. Well, doesn't that indicate that that child just has energy that he's got to use somehow? So, so maybe that what that child could use is a. Uh, 
theraband, a stretchy band to put under his feet, and he can pull on it while he's taking the test. Yeah, there, there are, yeah, so you know, many. Maybe maybe some people put a piece we, of Velcro underneath the under the desk just for them for the tactile. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. or just adjusting the child's desk so that it fits correctly at his table. Oh yeah, so all four right. legs of the chair so, fall at the same time. Yeah. So I want to give everyone a few minutes to um, before we we um, run out of time. I want to give um, each of you just a few minutes, and I want to start with you, um, Carol. Um, what would what is it that you would like parents to know? What sensory processing disorder is and is not? Uh, it is a physiologic problem. It's not willful. It's not getting up in the morning and trying to, to figure out how to press everybody's buttons and make enemies on the playground. Um, <laughs> I think I think when we look at our... when We have to understand that the, that when the child says, this, these socks are making me crazy, the socks are making him crazy. And <laughs> uh, when going over speed bumps uh, causes the child to shriek, and there he is locked into his car seat and... He's about to fall off the face of the earth with those speed bumps. I think we have to acknowledge and respect that this kid is not screeching because he's wanting to. He wants to be like everybody else. He wants to learn. He wants to please his grown-ups. So um, uh, I just think with these sensory goggles, which is a term that is a, 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 a wonderful sensory mom named Lori Renke came up with that term, <clears throat> Putting them on can help so much, and I just want to tell you one little story. <clears throat> Excuse me. My grandchildren were here, and we were playing in the basement, which has <clears throat> suspended swings and a crash pad and dress ups, and the, it's got it's a sensory heaven down there. Um, and we'd been playing for a couple of hours, and all of a sudden, these the boy and girl started to squabble, which they don't usually. And it was over a doll, and the boy never wants the doll, but he had to have it. So I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I better intercede. I think what they need is proprioceptive. So I said, okay, kids, let's run into the crash pad. No, no, no. I thought, oh, maybe some swinging. So I hook up the platform swing. No, no. I pull out the velvet and the satin king's and queen's gowns and robes. No, no, no. Now they're crying. And my son walked in at that point. He said, Mom, what's going on? I said, I don't know, Jeremy. I tried, I tried proprioceptive. I tried vestibular. I tried tactile. I've run out of ideas. He said, Mom, they're hungry. <laughs> so sometimes, it's true. Don't 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 miss the obvious. Right, right. So sometimes uh, you 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 know you can look too hard. But but um, uh, I just would like parents to kind of step back a little bit and look at look at the behavior. Behavior is telling us something and try to figure out what the underlying reason for this child's atypical behavior is. Um, and um, and then do something. Uh, you know, I think, I think kids need to learn to be part of life. Social participation, as Lucy says all the time, is so important. Children need to be able to come to the Thanksgiving table, and they need to go to a birthday party, but we don't have to keep them there. I think that if they... If they, you know, five minutes, if that's all. But they have to be right. part of it a little bit. And then that um, the art and science of parenting is knowing when to say, okay, that's fine. We 
thank you for this much. And next time I think you'll... I think so too. I think it's important to adjust your lifestyle to fit the child's um, disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's I, I've talked enough. I, um... <laughs> you 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 said <laughs> it was fantastic because it's what you know, parents need to hear. Um, Dr. Miller, what would you like parents to know? I would mostly like parents to know that it's not a parental problem. I see parents every day. They come to my clinic, and they're so guilty and so worried and so their mother-in-law has told them this and that and their next-door neighbor has said, why don't you take parenting classes? And this is not parental. Like Carol said, it's physiological. It's not behavioral, but it also is not a parental problem. Parents should try to remember to seek early identification. If they have a gut-level feeling, no matter what people are telling them about, he'll grow out of it or nothing's wrong or you're being hysterical. If you have a gut-level feeling that there's something different about your child, get it checked out. Get a complete multidisciplinary evaluation. And if what you find out is nothing is wrong with your child, great. That's great. Yeah, you learned something. Yeah, but at least you will have checked out the possibility of some of these other things. And and the lastly, my last point, we haven't talked very much about treatment, but there are treatment there are treatment there's treatment and there's treatment. Like any other field, there's um a real range of treatment that you could get. And we have found that intensive treatment model where the child gets a heavy dose of treatment in a short period of time, and the family is very involved with the treatment, is much more effective than sort of the once a week for the rest of your life kind of model, where the parent sits in the waiting room usually and the child is dropped off. So I would really encourage parents to look for information about treatment models. We have so much information on the on the foundation website and on uh, also on my center website. But the foundation has a library with hundreds of articles in it that parents can download. So I will send you that information about the website, and you can put it on your link if oh, you we'll have one it. for parents. Oh, we'll yeah. be posting it everywhere. I mean, early intervention is key. I mean, you're absolutely key. right. And one question that I haven't asked that I am curious about is, do most children outgrow it, or does it lessen as they uh, transition into adulthood? If they get treatment, it lessens. If they don't get okay. treatment, they tend to go either into the mental health system or the juvenile justice system. Well, so, okay. so so early intervention is really key. Very key. Yeah. Right. Okay. And you know, Marianne, I w- yeah. I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. go ahead. No, I was gonna I was just gonna add to what they said. I said I was gonna say that the one thing I think is important is that people that have a diagnosis of S P D um, it doesn't mean that that's all that's going to go on. You know, it doesn't mean it's not. It just means that there's still the potential of those 25% of other kids that do have something else going on. And I think it's important to keep looking, keep asking mm-hmm. questions, keep seeking the right help for your child because mm-hmm. it doesn't mean it's going to be autism or mental health. You know, my son's dyslexic. It means that there he does have auditory discrimination issues. Each kind of piece keeps coming as they get older, and I know that kind of sounds daunting and scary for parents, but it is important to keep looking, you know. One answer um, is just one answer for that set of behaviors. And in the case of this Oprah show, um, you know, had I seen that when my son was first diagnosed, I don't know that I would have kept going and realizing that there was more going on. But I think it's important right. to, me, to mention that, that, you know, if you see more behaviors, if there are still red flags, if there is still that gut instinct that 
something else is going on, you know, keep following that. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I, as I say all the time, you just have to keep digging. You turn no mm-hmm. stone, um, you know, unturned. And, you know, I think that one thing that we didn't mention is that for a lot of these issues, you really also have to rule out underlying organic basis. Absolutely. So, um, it's very, very important that you do your homework and that you do your checking because there could be an underlying medical condition, organic basis for behaviors also. So, you know, you put your detective cap on and you take your mommy cap <laughs> off because, you know, yeah. you've got a lot of work to do. Right. And you get a multidisciplinary um, team. Yes. Yeah. I think that's key, Dr. Miller. Yeah. Let's hope let's hope that Oprah wants to expand on on uh, her her initial foray into SPD and and uh, do more programs to to show the uh, the way SPD affects all our kids and can exacerbate other problems. Um, it's a an opportunity. I, I hope she grabs it. Yes, uh, and I know oh. you're about to stop, but I just want to say the foundation is starting a letter-writing campaign, a very positive letter-writing campaign to try to get 10,000 letters to Oprah by the 1st of March to thank her for putting SPD on the show and also to help her understand that there's much more to it than has been shown so far. So if you listening in would like to join, there's all kinds of information on our website. And that's spdfoundation.net. Thank you, Carol. Slash Oprah. Yes. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, ladies, I I wish you luck on your campaign. uh, campaign. Um, You know, I think that any attention brought to any of these childhood disorders is so important. Uh, Parents are confused. Parents are frightened. And, um, you know, I hope what we accomplished this morning um, for this late-minute special edition that we did was to truly clarify, to inform, to educate, and to give calm to parents that are already frightened. And there are answers, there are people that can help you, and you've just heard from three of the best. So, ladies, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, lovely. Thank you so much. As I end the show each day, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Thank you for joining us this morning on The Coffee Clatch.